Elizabeth Elliot uh, is uh, quoted uh, to have said, uh, to pray thy will be done, uh, I must be willing, if that answer requires, that my will be undone. We walk in here with a battle of wills. <laughs> we will pray, God, your will be done in our lives. God, your will be done. We will pray a prayer like that. But then when the rubber meets the road, we walk in here battling every single day. Whose will will seize the day? God's or my own? <laughs> we've uh, been talking about biblical success in this series, in this new year, and, and we've defined biblical success as, as to this. When, when God's heart and God's ways become my heart and, and my ways, when, when there is a merger and infusion, when, when those two things are in line with each other, God's heart, God's ways are, are, are equal to my heart and my way, and here's what that means. <laughs> While we're here on planet Earth, we always have room for improvement. <laughs> and, uh, and where we've been getting this is Proverbs 3, uh, 3 and 4. It says uh, that uh, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart that you may find favor and success in the sight of God and man. Today, we're going to be looking at bind them around your neck. <laughs> which we're going to use that word commitment. Because if you're the first reader, you would know that, that this is likened to maybe an oxen that would have a yoke, something bound around the, their neck where they are locked in. They have no other option. They are committed. They are locked in. They are ready to go. It's not an if, it's they. They are moving in this direction. They are committed to the path because it is bound and chained around their neck where they are, they, they are in it. So in that spirit, let's pray. God, as we... Go about this experience. Father, I pray that you will use as Holy Spirit. This is for you to use. This is for you to move, Father. Lord, would we be willing? Father, I pray in end result, Lord, that, that out of here would come the committed Christians that you so desperately want to be walking our local coffee shops. Father, to be in our marriages, to be in our families, Father, to, to be at, at, at dinner, to, to be, if we are the only Christian that an unbelieving friend, an unbelieving spouse, an unbelieving co-worker sees, would they see you in us because of our love and our commitment to you? We love you, Jesus. We give it to you. In your name, amen. Uh, now, when it gets warmer or if there's any day in the winter months that it's over 50 degrees, I do like to go and I like to golf. Now, my version of golf is I shoot in the 90s. If you know golf, you know that is not a good score. So my version of golf is that everybody gets a mulligan, usually every single hole, which is a do-over. You get a do-over for every bad shot you have. My version of golf is that, that there, if this is like, if the hole is the back of the room and I'm right here, to me, that's a gimme. Like, like I'm very generous with the gimmies. Like, oh, you're close enough. Just count it. It's, it's, whatever. You're like, don't, you don't even have to put it. Just, it's yours. It's a gimme. That's my version of golf. My version of golf is the type of person that would maybe cut a hole in their pocket so that when you hit a shot and it clearly out of bounds, but you go and you walk around the woods and, and you put the golf ball in your pocket and then you, you put it through and it falls out the bottom of your pant leg and there it is on the ground. You're just like, man, it must have hit a wicked tree and here it is in bounds. What do you know? I found my golf ball here in bounds.
rounds and we're good to go. It's, that is my version of golf, and I don't judge others when, when they do that. But there are some that are scratch golfers, and they would get really mad because golf is a game of etiquette and rules and, and integrity and whatnot. That was Bobby Jones. Bobby Jones won about 13 majors. He's, he's, he is a Hall of Fame golfer, and he was a man of deep integrity. He was playing one tournament uh, where, where he was in the early rounds, and there's this rule in golf that uh, you can't touch the ball while it's still moving. And uh, he, he got to his ball, and, and, and sometimes in golf, it looks as if your ball is not moving because it, whether, maybe it's on a slope or something, and it's up on a piece of grass or whatever. But then you get to the ball, and just kind of ever so slowly starts rolling. And he got to the golf ball, and he found, and he touched it and, and realized that it was still ever so slightly moving. And, uh, and no one else knew it. There was no cameras on him. There was nobody looking around. Like, he, he could have moved on. But what he did was he, he, he assessed himself a one-stroke penalty. Again, no one knows, knew it. Uh, and then at the end of the tournament, what really was the, the kick in the pants was that he lost the tournament by one stroke. And so there he was getting interviewed at the end of the tournament. He's getting high praise uh, for, for assessing himself a one-stroke penalty. Why did you do it? Oh, this man, this is so your integrity, all this. And he returns to the reporter and he says, that's like praising me for not robbing a bank last night. Because for him, there was no dilemma. If the rule says X, I do X. If, if I'm committed to this game, if I'm committed to play within the rules, there is no dilemma for me. The, my integrity says this is what I do 100 times out of 100 times. The only person that has a dilemma, should I take the one-stroke penalty or not, is the person that lacks integrity. The person that, that would lack a commitment to the rules. Now, now that's, that's maybe one version where maybe, maybe okay, we're, we're starting to question that. I think some of us maybe sometimes lack commitment or lack integrity, and, and we don't see it because we're, we fall prey to the comparison game. We're, we're, we're looking at our own lives and be like, yo, I got integrity. Yo, I got commitment. And we can, we can spit it out like, oh, my gosh, here's, here's how it played out for me in high school. I, I, my best friend was an, a, a soccer buddy. Uh, he, wasn't in, uh, he didn't go to church. He wasn't from a Christian family. Uh, but uh, but he, he was a good friend of mine. And we would always just kind of toe the line of good fun but not really trying to cross that line, if you will. And uh, whenever we would get in trouble, he would always go home and say to his mom, uh, Mom, at least I'm not in a gang. And, and I was like, Josh, we live in New Hampshire. There are no gangs. We're in small Bodunkville, Bow, New Hampshire. Uh, and I was like, but, it, it, but somehow it worked. Like it literally got him out of trouble when his mom stepped back and was like, yeah, I guess it could be worse. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, cool. Like, I'll go spit this game on my mom. Like, I'll get in some trouble. I'll be like, Mom. Sheila, <laughs> at least, at least I'm not in a gang. And it never, ever worked. Because <laughs> in her mind, she wasn't trying to raise a kid that was just slightly better than your average gang member. <laughs> in her perspective, she was trying to raise a kid to be like Jesus. <laughs> so to be slightly better than above average in society standards was never the, the bar. <laughs> The bar was always striving to be like Jesus, and if I was missing the mark, there was something to talk about. You and I are called to live a life of full integrity and commitment to Jesus Christ. And I think in today's world, it's getting increasingly rare to find a Christian 
with integrity and commitment to Jesus Christ. Why? Because when we look at the world around us, the morality bar is getting lower and lower and lower. But in the church, we're becoming content to be slightly better than society. So as society's bar is lower, our bar lowers as well. I want to look at three young men. You know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you know the story if you've grown up in church and the fiery furnace and all this. We want to look at this. I want us to think about the pressure that they were facing. I want to look at their lives and see how they lived a life of resolve and commitment to Christ. And so we're going to read most of this story so that we have a full context and a full understanding of what's going on. So it's going to be Daniel chapter 3. You can turn there in your Bibles or you can Google Daniel 3 ESV and it will pop up on, on your smartphones. Here, So first, here's the situation. The king of the day is King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was six cubits, breadth was uh, uh, 60 cubits, and whose breadth was six cubits. Uh, he set uh, it up on the plain of Dura, which is a very prominent area in the province of Babylon. He calls all the officials together. He, everybody, the who's who of the land, anybody that had any sort of position, uh, position in the kingdom, they all get called there and they, dedic- and they, they dedicate uh, this golden statue. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O people, nations and language, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the, whatever that word is, harp and the bagpipe, and, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately, immediately cast Cast into the fiery, the burning fiery furnace. The music plays, and they all do it. Think about the pressure if you're a Jewish man living in that day and age. If you're a Jewish man in exile, away from your home, uh, homeland. There, there's this pressure that you're facing that cannot be overstated. The statue itself is massive. In our language, it's about 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. Like the sheer image of it in that day and age would build and create some, some pressure. Those who are assembled, if you're there, you're part of the who's who. You're part of people that have a position. You're, you, you have some authority. You have some influence. You're there. You would not want to lose that. There is pressure to be part of it. There's pressure knowing that there is a precise moment where you will hear music. And then you'll have to make a decision. Do I bow or do I stand? Pressure. There's a pressure of the outcome. If I choose not to bow, I will die. Pressure. There's pressure to know that if I bow or if I stand, I'm likely standing alone. Pressure. And many of us walk into this room with our own 90-foot statue. Pressure, 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 pressure of family, pressure of COVID, pressure of our physical health, pressure of a demanding job, pressure of finances or the lack of finances, pressure, pressure, pressure. Last week, I had an example that was kind of that lived out before me in the person of Patrick Engroff. Uh, he is somebody that about a, 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 maybe nine, ten months ago, we were sitting in my backyard or around a fire, and we were just talking because pressure was brewing up inside of him. He, he owned his own business, and in that conversation, he, that, that pressure was consuming him. And so out of that conversation, he made the decision to sell his business. But the pressure did not go away in his life. 
the pressure just diversified and went to other areas. And now I'm looking at him, new job, new house, uh, and family. Now, he's, now he has the time to coach his son's basketball team, but he will admit he knows absolutely nothing about basketball, but he was just the one willing to do it. And so there's the pressure of that, the pressure to lead that. He has the pressure of his job, the pressure of, his, uh, of a white uh, family man, a husband. He has all this pressure that you and I face with. Three crazy kids that are normal kids, but they're crazy kids. Just like you and I. Pressure, pressure, pressure. And you know how I saw him serve God through the pressure last weekend? Friday, he was here cleaning the church. Saturday, he had breakfast with me to be, because he's a fellow elder, and we just have a, a once a month breakfast to hold each other accountable. He was there and committed to that. And then Sunday, he was here at 7.30 a.m. with his son, uh, PJ, Sir hugs a lot. He's a hugger. Um, and, uh, and he was here doing the slides. And then he was setting up all the parking signs. And then he was the parking team that morning. The pressures in, in, in Pat's life didn't get the best of him. He's learning how to serve Jesus in the midst of the pressure. How much pressure do you feel for your faith? Or for many of us, do we not feel pressure? Perhaps it's because it's showing the seriousness of our faith in our own life. Do we, do we not feel pressure because we are giving God our leftovers and not our first fruits? We're giving him the best leftovers, when, but God is really asking for our best first fruits, the best of us. Pressure has a way of revealing idols. Dwight Moody said this, you don't have to go to a heathen land to find a false god. America is full of them. Whatever you love more than God is your idol. Tim Keller wrote a book on this subject, and he said, uh, an idol is anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. What will you do when the pressure of idol worship comes knocking at your door? The fact is that many of us walk in here with these idols that if properly viewed and properly used are actually a good thing. But when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. It becomes an idol. So is your personal time becoming an idol? Is your finances becoming an idol? Is your family becoming an idol? Is your job becoming an idol? When you feel pressures in those areas, will you stand and commit your life to Christ in those areas? Here's the outcome uh, for, these, uh, for these men. Here's what, here's what, you know what, could you guys stand as, as we read this? Stand as we, as we read this, because this, is, this, is, this was the challenge for them. When it comes time to sit, will they, will they sit? He says that after the king is now reminded of everything he said and the command, here's, here's how it plays out. There are certain Jews whom, ha, whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious. Rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So that, so they brought these men before king, the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered uh, to them and, and, and he said, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, now, here's your second chance. If you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the, the lyre, the, uh, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship uh, the image that I have made, then well and good. You're good. Everything's groovy. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into the fiery furnace. And who is the God? 
who will deliver you out of my hands. You hear that pride? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered to the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> and I imagine it would be in a tone like this. We have no need to answer you on this matter because the matter is already decided for them. What the, what the king sees as an issue for them is a non-issue. It's already been decided. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Everybody but the front row right here. Can you guys have a seat? <laughs> have a seat. You can sit too. <laughs> yes, I'm asking them to stand. Yes, I, I gave them an order to stand, and, and they're obeying the order. <laughs> Imagine these three men standing in a crowd a lot larger than this. And all of a sudden, there's this decisive moment where everybody bows. And three people are remaining. Three people are standing with all the eyes of the nation on them. They feel pressure right now, don't they? <laughs> They feel awkward right now. They feel out of place because they haven't conformed to everything else that everybody else is doing in this moment. And in this moment, the three that remain standing are now brought before the king. You guys can have, have a seat. Uh, they, these three men are brought before the king and they're, in essence, they're saying, king, these are your boys. You've established them. You've put them into position. King, let me remind you, now they're disrespecting you. King, you've set up this glorious statue and they're doing you dirty by not bowing. They don't worship your gods, king. And so now they're standing before the king and that pressure builds even more. Now they're getting a second chance. Now their re re resolve is gonna be tested. They're standing before the king that has established their position. Will they slap the hand that feeds them? They will. If it means slapping the hand of God. They'll choose that all day long to slap the king's hand versus slapping God's hand. They're standing before the king, and in essence, the king's saying, boys, come on, be smart here. Do you really think your God is able? Do you really think there's somebody more powerful than me that can, that can, that can save you from this situation? In light of my power, come on, come on, come on, really? Come on. But their, their commitment was never up for debate. Their commitment was a non-negotiable before negotiations even began. If challenged to worship the gods of this world and be praised for it, or to worship the one true living God and be burned to a crisp, there is no contest for these young men. And they add this P.S., in this whole situation, they look before the king, and they, and they make sure the king knows, hey, hey, king, P.S., I do believe that my God is able, and I do believe that he will. But I want you to know that even if he doesn't, we will not bow before you or any of your man-made gods. I want you to know, king, that there is a God worth standing for. 
Even though I know his power, I believe his power, I do not presume to know his will. So even if he doesn't save us, I still will not bow. I had, uh, in high school, it was, uh, everything's magnified in high school. And, and I kind of had a, uh, a fiery furnace type, type moment, and it was obviously nowhere near like that. Uh, it's, it's super exaggerated. Uh, but, but I was kind of the known Christian uh, kid in, in my high school. And, uh, and I, I walk into the lunchroom, and there was a, a circular table with all the cool kids, if you will, uh, over, uh, over to the right-hand side. And, and I walk into the lunchroom, and they were waiting for me. And, and they called me over, and they had a $20 bill sitting on the table. Uh, and, uh, and John Prescott of Johnny Prescott's Oils, uh, he, he, was, uh, he was like, Jason, uh, I'm going to give you this, uh, this 20 if you swear. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not, no. Like, and, then the, and then the whole table was like, come on, just you know, bleepity bleep, do it. Come on, don't be a bleepity bleep. Like they're using all the curse words <laughs> to try to make me comfortable with saying. And, and truth be told, like, I mean, I was a high school kid. Like I would, I would have a few things fly out of my mouth from time to time, but I wasn't accustomed to it. And I really wasn't accustomed to giving in when I was going to be pinned against my God. Uh, and so I, I, I walked away from all their pressure uh, to, to curse, didn't curse, walked away from it, got my own lunch. And then from that, from that day forward, uh, because I walked away from $20, uh, you can look at my yearbook. It's all signed Rev. They called me Rev, 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 uh, because apparently that's what happens uh, when, uh, when you walk away from $20. <laughs> if you were to walk into the lunchroom right now and you were be, to be given a test, if you were standing before a king, if you were to be standing before a police officer or the mayor or, or anybody in authority, if you're, if, you're, if you're standing there and you have all this pressure building up inside you where all of a sudden your faith is getting tested, would you commit now to stand when it's time to stand? What, current, what, what is maybe not a current reality in your life that you need to pre-commit to. If this became a current reality in my life, I will commit now to do what I need to do when this plays out in the future. Maybe it's a situation that you, that you know might happen one day. You're waiting on some money to come in. God, if this money comes in, I commit to honor you with the influx of money. Lord, hey, we're trying to have kids. And Lord, if you, if you so bless me with kids, I commit now to raise them as you would want me to raise them. I'm engaged or I'm newly married and, and, and health is good. But Lord, right now, if my spouse was to get sick, I commit to love my wife through sickness when sickness comes her way. God, I work in a job that sometimes ethics are, they don't think of ethics the way I think of ethics. And so God, if, if an unethical situation ever comes my way as it did for my coworker, I commit now to take a stand for godly ethics. God, I, my, my, my brother just was at a party with, uh, with my family, and, and he just got roasted for his faith. God, if that situation comes my way, I will stand up for the truth and stand up even against my family for what I know to be true in my faith. I commit now. And what's the outcome that we hope for? Well, here's... Here's what the text says. And again, it's, it's a little bit longer, but I, I want us to feel and see this story. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. This 
It's the boys that, that are supposed to be honoring him. There's, like he put them in position. And so once his pride was tested, once his pride was like, oh, like, you're not going to do what I say. Now anger is, is there. The expression of his face changed against. He's, he goes from smiling to ticked off against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace be heated up seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army, the strongest of the strong, uh, to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the fiery furnace. And these men bound uh, their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and all their other garments. Uh, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace because the king's order was, was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame uh, of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It is a hot situation. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound in the burning fiery furnace. And the king Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. This, this should be a done deal. But he, he, he gets up in haste, rose up in haste, and declared to his counselors, did not we cast three men into the fire? There's a problem here. And they answered to the king, yes, king, true, true, O king, he answered. And he said to them, but I see four men unbound. There's a problem. Walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. There's a problem. It just killed some of our strongest individuals. And these now four men are walking unbound as if nothing is going on. And that fourth one is the appearance of, uh, of uh, the fourth, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Many believe that it's Jesus Christ in the Old Testament walking in the fire with these young men. Problem that for ne King Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door in the burning fiery furnace and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire and the, and the satraps and, the, and the, perfect, uh, the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any, any power over their bodies of these men. The hair on their heads was not singed. The cloaks were not, had not harmed them. And there's not even a smell of fire that came upon them. They are completely unaffected. Nebuchadnezzar answered, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up, offered up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make this decree. Any people, nation or language that speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb to limb and their house laid to ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue this day. And the king promoted <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Hear me very clearly. God will allow you to go into the furnace. God will allow you to go into the furnace. They still were thrown into a furnace. They had to walk through the fire. But the faithfulness and the commitment of my God says that he will walk through it with us. Integrity will not keep us from getting thrown into a fiery furnace, but it can keep us from getting burned. Their attitude, our attitude has to be, I'd rather get in trouble with King Nebuchadnezzar than get in trouble with the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. The God who didn't, uh, the God who didn't deliver, um, the God who delivered them from the fire is the God who is walking with us through the fire and delivering us out of the fire. 
They, they were invited out, and, and the king sees that everything is good. And when he sees that everything is good, he sees their result. He sees the outcome of their result. That is when the king realizes there is a God who can deliver anybody, even out of my hand. And so he issues that decree, making the Jewish religion a respected religion. And if you disrespect this religion, then you are going to be the ones torn from limb to limb. And then by the end of the day, they are even promoted. Where the days start where we might die, we might give it, we, we, we might lose our bodies at the fiery furnace. By the end of the day, their resolve is they got promoted. I, uh, this, uh, this pizza church thing that we're doing Sunday nights, there's this, there's this mom that's been coming uh, for two weeks. And uh, she brings uh, three uh, three young boys with her, uh, presumably her kids, and uh, and it, every time I see her now, it, it just I, I see my mom in her. I have two brothers, and I see this mom walking in with this resolve uh, to be to be uh, making being around God's people an important thing. And, uh, and, and it strikes me because she, she, she lives in Lakehurst. She's traveling to Bayville on a Sunday evening because of whatever the schedule is, they can't make church on a Sunday morning. And so she just has this resolve to, to get to church. Uh, her one son doesn't even like pizza, but yet they're coming to pizza church. And, uh, and there's just, you can see this mom, like you can just literally see it in her face. And, and it strikes me because this, this, this reminds me of my own upbringing uh, where I, I, had, I had a crazy psycho mom when it, when it came to this. And uh, I say that because I know she's going to be watching and she'll tell me about that later. There'll be a text message waiting for me. Um, but anyways, uh, so, but growing up, I, I, would, I would make, I played baseball. And this is a, this is a picture of, uh, of one of the baseball teams. You guys can go, ah, oh, what an adorable young man, right? And, uh, and so the house I lived in has been torn down. It wasn't a good house. Anyways, uh, but anyways, uh, I digress. Uh, so I would make an all-star team. But I just knew if I made the all-star team uh, that if our, the church that we went to had uh, 10 a.m. That was the only offering, <laughs> Uh, and so if the game was at 10 a.m., I knew I would show up in the seventh inning. Uh, that going to church was just a non-negotiable for our family. And, uh, and uh, so I would either, I've literally missed all-star games uh, because they were inconveniently uh, happened to be during church hours. And, uh, and I knew going into high school, like uh, my friends knew, Josh knew that, hey, you can, you can sleep over on a Saturday night, but Jason's crazy mom is going to wake your butt up and drag your butt to church. <laughs> you just knew that. And so you expected it. You got used to it. Uh, Jason, boys, like if, if you guys want to go out late on a Saturday night, that's fine. Go out, play hard, have all the fun you want. But just know when you're working on one hour of sleep, I'm going to be singing Rise and Shine. Give God the glory as I wake your butt up <laughs> and drag your sorry butt to church because you can play hard, but we're going to pray hard. And that was just something that was part of who we were as a family. And it taught me to respect the family of God that we so often take for granted. Commitment that above all else, here's the priority, and we're going to live out of the priority. We need more men and women desperately sold out for God's people and God's kingdom here in this world, more than any other time in perhaps the history of mankind. We're so accustomed to taking measures into our own hands, but when we take measures into our own hands, we, we eliminate God from the equation. When, we, when God is not part of the main equation, guess what we prevent from brewing up inside of us? 
the resurrection power that God wants to have risen up inside of you, the, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, for those that call on the name of Jesus, you have that inside of you, the very spirit of God. But there are so many of us walking around as half-dead Christians. Why? Because we've given our commitment to God, but this area we're letting linger. This area we're letting linger, linger, linger. God will not resurrect what is not fully dead. You have to kill those areas of your life to allow God's resurrection power to brew up inside of you. And every single time you and I make God the priority in our lives, above our comfort, above our convenience, and even when it's costly, here's the example that we can take from these these three young men. God will be praised and glorified in those situations. Our big thoughts for us this morning is simply this. There is nothing to solve when you live with resolve. If God is the resolve, if God is the utmost priority in your life, like Bobby Jones, when it comes time, there's nothing to solve. This is what we're going to do. Like these three young men, if God is your resolve, there's nothing to, will I stand or will I sin? I don't know. Nope, that's not true for the the committed Christian. Many of us are looking at this and saying, man, like what would I do if I were these three young men? Would I stand? Would I sit? For them, it was never a question. For us, we create these questions where there should be no questions. Should should I read my Bible? That's not a question for, for the committed follower of Jesus Christ. Should I be surrounded by the family of God? That's not a question for the committed follower of Jesus Christ. Should I, should I love the Lord through serving? That's not a question for the committed follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, what, should I, should I, what should I do when, when it's not easy, when it's inconvenient, or when it's uncomfortable? That's not a question for the committed follower of Jesus. We need more men and women to take a stand. More men and women saying, God, you can have my first fruits. I'm done giving you the leftovers. And what's been on my heart all week long is to ask our people, to ask those in the camera, where are our committed Christians? Where are my Esthers that that would say, if I perish, I perish? Where are my Stevens who would say, I'm willing to declare the name of Jesus while being stoned to death? Where are my Pauls who, who when left for dead, when the whole city thinks that you're outside the city and that you're dead, we've killed you. And when you get back to your feet, you don't run away from the city. You actually run back into the city. Why? Because there's still a job to do. Where are my widow's might? Where are those that don't have two coins to rub together, but you're saying, I will give God even more than what I feel like I have and let him magnify the little to make much of it. Where are my Daniel saying, I will be faithful in the lion's den, through the lion's den, and out of the lion's den? Where are my young men saying, if I burn, I burn. I will always stand for my Jesus. Where are my Deborahs saying, man, if you don't want to fight, I will fight in the power of the holy God that I serve and put you to shame to see what God does through me, a woman. Where are my Christians saying, forget the comforts. I'll volunteer. If there's a need to fill, I will fill it. If I have to drive, I drive. If it's time to speak up at work, I will speak up. If it's time to love the person that's down and out, let me, the Christian, be the one to love those who are down and out. Where are my committed Christians saying, y'all can make whatever excuse you want, but here's my anthem. For the one that gave it all, nothing is a sacrifice. 
Where are my committed Christians saying, you can have all this world? Just give me Jesus. Where Jesus is the utmost priority, and he is where we make all of our decisions. George, Wa- uh, George Washington, uh, nope. Um, George W., though, uh, at the conference that I went to uh, where I felt really tested with um, this whole uh, success thing, like, hey, my life is going to cross a finish line. Am I content with the finish line that it's going to cross? Uh, George W. was one of the speakers there, and uh, he talked a lot about his presidency, and naturally, and, uh, and he talked about how he had certain values in his, uh, for his presidency that, he, that he's like, hey, man, like, like, there's a lot of decisions that you have to make, but if you have some priorities in your life, then it's a lot easier to make those decisions, and you just make it based on your priorities, and he talked about how he valued life, and there was some political things uh, that are a typically Republican thing that uh, was like, hey, I value, I value the sanctity of life and whatnot, and so I make these decisions uh, that's based off of my value for life, but then a, a non-Republican thing that came my way during my presidency, uh, uh, Republicans aren't typically great with the foreign aid and helping other people. We want to protect our own, if, if you will, and not, and not help those that are down and out worldwide. But he's like, but I value life. That's one of my core values, to value life. Uh, and so when I was presented by a lot of Democrats uh, to send a lot of foreign aid uh, over to Africa to help fight uh, the AIDS, uh, uh, AIDS situation going on over there, uh, I was like, yeah, I value life. So this is a, this is a non-decision for me. We're going to send aid over there. And, uh, and so that's when you saw President Bush uh, teaming up with Bono. Uh, and again, that's not a partnership that you would typically see, right? If you remember back in the day, uh, Green Day uh, made a, uh, an album called American Idiot. Uh, not big George Bush fans. Uh, but Bono uh, said, I value life uh, like you, President Bush. And so they teamed up together. Uh, to send a lot of aid and, and bring a lot of goodwill over to Africa to fight AIDS. Why? Because the priority was that we are going to value life and do whatever we can to save millions and millions of lives. Are you committed to the proper values? What values do you have in your life that are going to help you make decisions that would, that would show what you're committed to? Is Jesus at the top of that list? And so my challenge for you and I uh, today is something that only you can do. I'm going to ask that you spend a week and, and maybe, maybe, maybe you think you're more committed or maybe like the standard is not the world around us. The standard is not the person next to you. And I'm going to challenge you to identify, predetermine, and then commit. Part of identifying is saying, I'm going to not assume that I'm committed. I'm going to look at my schedule and say, man, like every single day, write what you do by, by the 15-minute blocks. And maybe by the end of the week, you'll be like, Man, I watched 15 hours of television. Huh. Maybe I could change that up. <laughs> you look at your finances to identify, maybe I'm not committing. You're like, man, I pay more for cable than I gave to the church all last year. Maybe I'm not financially committed like I thought. <laughs> God has blessed me with this talent, and I, and I spend all these hours a week in, in this place, in this place, in this place, but... Maybe God wants me to serve the church, and I'm, I'm realizing I'm not serving, serving God's kingdom with these talents, time, treasure, talents. So I want you to identify an area where maybe you lack commitment, but then look at yourself and say, here's what I'm going to predetermine. What does commitment look like in that area? If I was fully committed in this area where I lack time, treasure, talents, this is what it would look like to be committed in this area, and then I commit now to do that and to live that out. I can't answer this 
for you. But you can. The Spirit of God is inside of you. The Holy Spirit's job is to reveal to you. And so it's begging the Holy Spirit to reveal so that then we can go and do and become more and more like Jesus Christ.